The title of our message this morning is The Satisfaction of Helping Others Imitate Christ. Say that with me. The Satisfaction of Helping Others Imitate Christ. So I read an article recently in the Wall Street Journal uh, titled, Forget What You Think Happiness Is. Uh, And it's an article about how the COVID-19 pandemic has forced people to rethink their understanding of happiness. Uh, One neuroscientist noted uh, how some mistakenly equate happiness with uninterrupted joy. Right, sunsets, home runs, and chocolate cake. (laughs) Uh, She went on to say that one of the myths about happiness is that people assume it means always feeling good and always being in a state of enjoyment. And this neuroscientist, she said, that's really not a helpful definition of happiness. And here's why. It's not sustainable. I mean, just physiologically, your physical body is not capable of maintaining continual, constant, uninterrupted bliss. Um, You know, unpleasant emotions such as sadness or fear or anger can actually be helpful. They can help us avoid threats and harm, and they can even push us to seek support. She said that genuinely happy people, and I I love this word, I learned this word, are emodiverse. Emodiverse, meaning they can manage a variety of, of emotions, different emotions. So, so emodiverse people are satisfied overall with the way their life is going, which really is a better way to understand happiness. So the notion of overall life satisfaction versus moment-by-moment emotional bliss, that more accurately defines happiness. And that's the article that you don't need to read now, that I've basically told you what it says. Forget what you think happiness is. It's about overall life satisfaction. But you're probably wondering what I was wondering, and it's this. So then what is it that can truly satisfy? Uh, If it's about overall life satisfaction, what truly offers life satisfaction? And that's an old question. It's a question as old as a pastor in North Africa, uh, Augustine, pondered that question. And his conclusion was this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Our hearts are restless We truly will not be satisfied until we find our satisfaction at an intellectual and heart level in the God of this universe. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. 
I mention all this because this is really what's behind our scripture today. Our scripture today answers the question, what can truly satisfy? Who can truly satisfy? And the apostle Paul says in no uncertain terms, imitating Christ, the life of Christ, Living out the life of Christ in my life, that is what truly satisfies. And I want you to see that as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. We are in a series through Paul's first letter of the Corinthians. And and these verses today discuss the issue of Well, how can I truly find satisfaction? Paul says it's in the Lord. It's in imitating Christ. All things are lawful. Now, you'll notice that's in quotes. Okay? So, the the Corinthians are quoting. That's the Corinthians quoting. And then Paul's going to respond. All things are lawful, so says the Corinthians, but then now Paul responds, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, once again, that's them quoting, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. We'll talk about that in just a second. Paul says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, that's not the Corinthians quoting. That's Scripture. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, see it, as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Now, have you ever found yourself, you know, wandering into? The conclusion of a conversation. And the conversants had been talking for the last 20 minutes, and you got about the last 30 seconds. All right? That's kind of what's happening here. These verses are the conclusion of a three chapter conversation in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And it's about the conscience, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Um, The Corinthians 
came to Christ out of a pagan background. And they wanted Paul's advice on whether they should consume food that was connected to their previous pagan life. And some said, a calorie's a calorie. It's meat. Others, however, were feeling conflicted. Um, consuming the same food gave them a memory about a past that they really didn't want to revisit. And so you had some Christians, like in a space like this, who would feel confident and strong in their conscience about it, it's, a, it's a calorie. Others um, would just not feel as confident. They would feel weak in their conscience about that issue. It didn't mean that they were just weak people. It just meant that their conscience wasn't fully bolstered about that particular issue uh, in reference to idol meat. If these verses were written today, the issue might be possibly drinking certain beverages or is it okay to play cards or is it okay to play certain music or is it okay to dance? And some would say, well, yeah, yeah of course, it's fun, it's restorative. And, and, but yet others just, just don't feel as confident in their conscience, you see. And it reminds maybe them too much about a past that they would rather forget. So, so these verses are about awareness concerning where I am in my conscience about a particular issue, and then practicing sensitivity to my brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently or whose consciences inform them differently about the same issue. And so, uh, the, in one sense, yeah, we're talking about something as specific and practical as meat and drink, but on the other hand, it's really about our relationship, and it's really about love and the extension of love. Um, and so Paul says, I want you to listen to your conscience. I want you to listen to your conscience. Uh, now, your conscience is not infallible, but your conscience is a teacher. You should generally listen to your conscience, and at the same time, you need to make sure that your conscience is calibrated with Scripture. So Paul brokers a compromise in these three chapters. In chapter 8, he says that, you know, you're right, food is food, a calorie is a calorie, and some have a difficult time disassociating the food from their past, which had to do with idol worship. And so Paul says, look, don't risk destroying someone's faith over a piece of meat. Don't risk that. So don't cause that person to stumble and fall. Now, Paul the stumbling and falling does not mean, well, that just annoys me. It just annoys me when you do that. If that annoys you when you do that, deal with it. <laughs> okay? We're not talking about annoy. We're talking about destroying. 
okay? And so, so Paul says, don't risk destroying someone's faith over a piece of meat. You need to be willing to defer out of love. And, and that's what he talks about in chapter 9. And he talks about himself as an example of surrendering personal rights so that others can know Christ. And, and then in chapter 10, in chapter 10, he says, look, look, I said in chapter 8, don't risk destroying your brother or your sister's faith over a piece of meat. But then he, then he kind of then he goes from preaching to meddling. And in chapter 10, he says, I, I don't want you to risk destroying your own faith uh, by going to those pagan temples and eating at those restaurants. That's just too much temptation. If you, if you like idol meat that much, order carry out. Go to the meat market and buy it there. I'll, I'll show you in just a minute. So it's, 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 not, it's not what's on the menu, it's the venue. That's what's going on here. So, so don't confuse people about your faith. But, but here's the deal, and this is where we get into this conversation that I just read. It, it, it's really not about the idol meat or not. It's not about playing cards or not, or drinking or not, or dancing or not. The issue is this. Here it is. What will bring lasting life satisfaction? And for Paul, it is Jesus imitating Christ Mimicking Christ, mirroring Christ, speaking like, thinking like, relating like, loving like, acting like Jesus Christ, reproducing Jesus Christ in my life is the most... You, reproducing Christ, now that's my chocolate cake. That's it. And that's what brings happiness. And so here's the big idea of these verses. The satisfied life, the satisfied life is the life that imitates Christ. The saddest, oh, oh, Paul says, if I could just get you Corinthians, and if I could get, just get you Windsor Rodians to, to feel and accept and, uh, and own and live out this truth, that the satisfied, the most satisfied life is the life that imitates Christ. Amen? Now then, okay, what does that look like, preacher? What, what, give me something practical. Well, in these verses, the Apostle Paul gives us two ways to imitate Christ. Two behavioral activities. Listen, they're exactly the opposite, but they're not contradictory. <laughs> they're not. And here they are. Here they are. Paul says if you want to imitate Christ, here's what, you need to, here's what you need to learn to do. You need to learn to freely enjoy, freely enjoy, and then secondly, freely abstain. Free, freely enjoy and freely abstain. Uh, uh, freely enjoy in a spirit of gratitude and freely abstain for the sake of love. Hmm? Let's talk about those two. But, but I, let, me just, let me just lean into why this matters. These verses are about becoming. Here's what Paul wants for us, church. Paul says, I want you to be the kind of person that leads other persons to believe that they've been in the presence of God when they're with you.
you think about the next meeting you have, whatever it is. Paul says, I, whatever that meeting is, as a result of that meeting with that person, will you just do your best by the power of God to help that person as a result of their interaction with you to walk away from that meeting saying, there's something, there was something different about that. I, I sense that I was in the presence of God. That's what Paul wants for us. That's what Paul wants for us individually. And that's what Paul wants for us as a congregation. That when folks come and they experience worship in community or online, that they, they, they walk away from that, not just with content in their head, but life change concerning their heart. That's what Paul wants. And that's why, and Paul says there's nothing like being a part of that. The most satisfied life is the life that imitates Christ. And the first behavioral activity to help that happen is freely enjoy all of God's gifts. Look at verse 25. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Let's look at this picture here for a minute. That is a meat market. The word in Corinthians is the word macalum. Macalum. Say that with me on three. One, two, three. Macalum. Macalum. It's called the macalum. It's a meat market. Uh, next slide. Uh, that's a, a, a fuzzy recreation of that. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. So it would have been a fairly, uh, fairly uh, you know, kind of posh looking uh, facility. Two stories. You can see that in the background. And there were stalls in each, uh, by each of those doors. And there's a fountain in the middle. That's what's the kind of a circular colonnade there. And uh, various cuts of meat would have been sold uh, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like going to the, the, the grocery store, except it would have just been in meat. Let's take a look at the next picture there. That would have been uh, from uh, kind of a floor plan. You can see the, the center of the fountain, and then you can see the different stalls and whatnot. And then we'll go to the next uh, picture. You say, where, where did you get all of that, Pastor? Okay, so this is actually a, a picture of the maculum or the meat market in the ancient city of Pompeii. And um, that's the closest that we have right now of what the meat market would have looked like. There was a similarity of meat markets throughout the empire. And this would have been the closest uh, in Corinth. They just haven't uncovered the one in Corinth yet because Corinth was such a large city. There was actually more than one uh, meat markets. And so you, uh, you, Paul says, you know, if you want meat, go there. Go there. Shop, eat, and don't even ask where the meat came from. You don't even have to ask. And why? Because it's meat. Calorie's a calorie. Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Um, Four times in these verses, uh, Paul uses the word eat. And three of the four times, Paul says eat. And only one time he says, don't eat. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So, I like those verses. Eat. Eat. Uh, 
And here's the point. Of all the people on earth, Christ followers ought to be known for enjoying the fullness of God's creation. So Paul envisions believers permeating cities and marketplaces and shopping spaces of the world. Paul envisions believers imitating Christ even as they go shopping for a leg of lamb or purchasing a pork shoulder or buying beef brisket. Mm. Paul envisions believers being invited to the home of unbelievers. Did you notice that in verse 27? When an unbeliever invites you over to their home, why don't you go? Oh, just go. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So don't even ask where the meat came from. Just enjoy dinner with this unbeliever who saw something different in your life so much that they invited you over. I mean, so Paul assumes that Christians are going to live such attractive lives that unbelievers are going to want to get to know them. Would you like to come over for dinner? And Paul says, I want you to receive that kind of hospitality and, and, and eat whatever is set before you with gratitude. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, well, why... Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Well, you shouldn't be announced for that for which you give thanks. Because gratitude, hear me, gratitude is the accent of heaven. When I get off the phone with my brothers in Tulsa, Oklahoma, one of the first questions Sarah once, uh, usually asks me is, you've been talking to your brothers, haven't you? And I said, well, how can you tell that? Huh? And on the phone with my urban cowboy brothers, how you doing? I'm doing real good. How you doing? Well, good. What are you cooking today? I'm getting some beef brisket in the smoker, little brother. I wish you were here. I wish I were there, too. That's the accent. You can tell. You can tell where your homeland is by your accent. Gratitude is the accent of heaven. And you know what the accent of hell is? Well, you've read it if you've read 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, especially verse uh, chapter 10, grumbling. That's the accent of hell. This person is a grumbler. Where are they from? Hmm? Well, Well, let's move on. Paul says, verse 31, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Food, drink, baptisms, weddings, funerals, work, plumbing, accounting, romance, recreation, sports. It's all for God's glory. Don't think that giving God glory is something simply relocated to right here, right now in church on Sunday. Oh, no. All of life is about, to, about living to the glory and honor and splendor and beauty of God. Uh, John Piper is a pastor, and he once wrote an article titled, How to Drink Orange Juice to the Glory of God. I mean, he just unpacks it, right? Oh, God, thank you for the color yellow. It is February, and it is gray. And thank you for yellow. 
thank you for yellow. Oh, thank you for the sweet, citrusy flavor, God. God, you grew the tree that produced the fruit that yielded the juice. Oh, and there's so much juice. I should share. How can I hoard this? I should share. You see? Oh, man. See, the article's point is about integrating everyday life with the splendor of God. I want to be so consumed with Christ, I can't even drink a glass of orange juice or a cup of coffee. A cup of coffee. Can I get an amen? Or fresh bread? Or tender beef? Or sweet vegetables? Without thinking of and thanking him. That's what Paul's saying here. When we love God most, we're able to integrate our happiness in God and our happiness in his gifts, receiving the gifts as just shafts of his glory. Supreme love for God orients our emotions and orders our desires and integrates our loves. And when we love God supremely, then we're free to love creation as creation. And not as God. Uh. Now, now let me just lean in this for just a minute. Uh, uh, and I want you to see how Paul internalizes this by what he has already written in Scripture. Look back at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. In those verses, Paul talks about sports, athletics. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? So Paul integrates sports with the spiritual life. Every other year in Corinth, there were the Isthmian Games. It was huge. It was an Olympic-level event. And so Paul takes something very familiar in Corinthian culture, and he baptizes it in Jesus. Paul says, I can't think about athletic games without thinking about Christ. Christ is the lens through which I see life, and that includes sports. So right now, think about your favorite sport, either that you like participating in or, or watching, or maybe it's the same. Baseball, basketball, football, tennis, golf, golf, golf. What do sports teach us about following Christ? Here, I just made a list. I just made a, well, sports has rules. Sports has limits. Uh, so, so that rules out the notion of relativism, right? Because you've got to you know, follow rules. I mean, and, and sports has a certain length of time. So your days are numbered, right? God's numbered your days. Uh, in sports, how you do what you do is just as important as what you do. Uh, win or lose. Uh, sports requires ethics and integrity. Sports calls for dedicated preparation and effort. You see what Paul's doing? He's giving us a theology of sports. Uh, it's dishonest not to give your best effort in a sports contest. Uh, in sports, we learn the meaning of competition from the Latin, compete, competio, to strive together. In sports, we learn how 
Different positions work together, strive together for unity. Thus, sports is the mutually acceptable quest for excellence. In sports, we learn leadership and followership. Oh, and in sports, we discover the meaning of fun. Play, play. In sports, you find out the kind of person you are, how well you play with others, how you perform under pressure, how you perform under pressure. The real you comes out. And then I read this story. Maybe you've heard of it. In 2008, two university softball teams, Western Oregon and Central Washington, they were playing a conference doubleheader. In the second inning of game two, Western Oregon senior Sarah Tukulski hit the first home run of her career over the center field fence. So she began to round the bases, and she didn't quite tag first base. So she went back to tag it. As she reversed direction, her knee suddenly gave out. And she collapsed to the field in great pain, just a few feet from the base. She could not continue rounding the bases under her own power. And her coaches could not help her. They couldn't even touch her. Or else, uh, there would be no home run. The hit would simply be recorded as a two-run single instead of a three-run home run if she received any assistance. So as the coach was about to make the substitution for a kind of a designated runner, Central Washington, the opposing team, Central Washington senior, her name was Mallory Holtman, she stepped forward and she asked this question, would it be okay if we carried her around and helped her touch each base? And that's exactly what happened. And Western Oregon, Sarah Tukolsky's team, won the game. Mary Holtman's team did not advance to the playoffs since she was a senior. That was it. But what she did that day, listen, was far more satisfying than a trophy. And afterwards, afterwards was the question. You could have won. Why did you do that? And she simply said, because it was the right thing to do. She hit the home run over the center field fence. I'll tell you something else, Robbie. You know this already. She was coached to think like that. And now you know why FCA matters. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's what brings happy satisfaction. Freely enjoy all of God's gifts for his glory and integrate those gifts into your, into your life. Freely enjoy and then freely abstain. Freely abstain from, from any of God's gifts out of love. So Paul says, look, go ahead, go to the Maccalum and buy meat at the marketplace. Eat whatever's set before you if you're a guest at someone's home. 
But then we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Now, you know, in our world today, we have like footnotes. I, I really think that that's how we need to understand verses 28 and 29. So actually, the flow of Paul's thought is this. Uh, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So that's really the flow of thought here. Verses 28 and 29, though, should really be understood as a footnote. Uh, it's important, but it, 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 Paul kind of interrupts himself. All right, that's, that's, we preachers do that. Paul says, okay, okay, if you are invited to a huge dinner party and there are scores of people and you get to the buffet table and someone points out, hey, I don't know if you want to eat that, it's idle meat, then say, oh, oh, okay, okay, all right. Abstain for the sake of that person's conscience, not yours, theirs, you see? So the point is this, you be so in love with Christ that if you need to give up something for the sake of love, then you can do it. And it's not that big of a deal. Because what's more important is someone else's edification and someone else's growth. Helping you on your way to heaven is more important to me than my personal preferences. And I, that's that's what's behind verses 23 and 24. All things, may, all things are lawful, the Corinthians say. Yeah, well, all things are lawful, but, but that's, that's the wrong question. Is the, the question is, is it helpful? Is it help, what's morally permissible and what's helpful are two different questions. And, and the, last, the latter question is the better question. And Paul just wants us to be instinctive about that. What will help you? What will build you? What will edify you? Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Uh, verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Now, why does Paul say that? Give no offense. Because, here, because the gospel is offensive enough. You don't, need to, you don't need to be more. You don't need to be offensive. The gospel is offensive. The gospel says that you are, <laughs> you are more evil than you think. And the gospel says you are more loved than you could ever imagine. See? And so Paul says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? Why does Paul do that? That they may be saved. Paul says my entire purpose in imitating Christ is to help others come to Christ. And I want to live in such a way that will make it easy for others to find their way to heaven. I want to escort others into the presence of Christ. Amen. Tomorrow morning, you're going to enter a classroom or an office or a clinic. The question is how can I make someone's day better? How can I bring Christ with me into whatever room I enter? L let me put it this way. When you walk into a room right now, can others sense the presence of peace of Christ? Well, why would I do that? That they may be saved. That's why Paul has said earlier, to the Jews, I became a Jew to win the Jews. To the Greeks, I became a Greek to win the Greeks. I become all things to all people by all possible means to save some. 
You, so Paul says, look, you are, you are free to enjoy all of God's creation if it will help others follow Christ. And you are free to abstain from any of God's gifts if it will help others follow Christ. To help others follow Christ. This, this is a vision of doing church. He's talking about a church community liberated from the need to work for God's love. Instead, we are freed to love and serve others. We serve others horizontally because God has served us vertically. And his love for us begets love from us. Because everything we need, hey, listen, what you, what you like may be at the at the meat market, but what you need is, is from Christ. And so now, now that we have, I mean, now that I have all that I, I, I need, I'm free to do everything for others without needing others to do anything for us. I'm, I'm free to love without expectations. I'm free to enjoy, I'm free to enjoy the home of an unbeliever and and show them how believers enjoy good food, good wine, pleasant company. And we're free to spend our lives giving instead of taking. You know, it, okay, I don't have to be first in line. Okay? I can be last in line. It's okay. It's okay. It's really okay. I can spend my life sacrificing myself for others instead of sacrificing others for myself. And imitating Christ keeps us from imitating Christ keeps me from worrying about the verdicts other people place on us. Every, listen, every day we're tempted to want to live by the verdicts of other people who who we would you know we're tempted to want to desire them saying you're good, you're competent, you're worthy, and so we walk around daily performing, you know, listening for the likes, listening for the likes, listening for the likes, and, and so our lives get fixated on other people's responses, and Paul's solution to this insecurity is freedom. To, to, imi to imitate Christ is to know that the trial is over. In fact, there is no trial. Court is adjourned. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free to love our neighbors and glorify our God because of him who took our place in court and gave us life. And he did not seek his own advantage, but ours so that we might be saved. He gave, he who had the rights gave up his rights so that we could feast and fast for God's glory and the good of others. Amen? Amen. Amen. God be praised. What would it look like? If our entire congregation knew when to freely enjoy God's gifts in gratitude, the accent of heaven, and then when to freely abstain from God's gifts out of love, when, when I know when to feast, I know when to fast. God, give me the wisdom to know when to feast and know when to fast for your glory and others' good. And the biggest benefit will be choppy waters right there. Choppy waters right there. More baptisms, 
More life change, amen. More glory to God. More Christ followers who together. You see, it's not just you imitate. It's we imitating Christ. There's so much more power and movement when we do this together. More satisfaction to the glory of God. Amen.